0: Hello. Welcome to the Theology Podcast. We've got a special show for you today. I am C.R. Wiley, and I'm sitting here with some friends, and I am sporting my own Waffle House hat. I know all the guys are envious right now and uh, thinking, where can I get a hat as cool as his? Well, uh, I'm not going to tell you, because I want to be special. I want to stand out in the crowd, be the Waffle House man. <laughs> Anyways, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest where there are no Waffle Houses. (laughs) You know, I'm actually in Battleground, Washington, which is a perfect place in the Pacific Northwest. It's like a red dot in the Sea of Blue, and it's got great people, but it does lack one thing, the Waffle House. I'm thinking about bringing the good news of the Waffle House to the Pacific Northwest I may start a franchise out here if they let me do that. Anyway, that's enough about that. Uh, I've written some books. Uh, One of those books is in the house of Tom Bombadil, and it seems to be doing pretty well. It seems like some folks like it. There are always people who don't like things. So there are some folks out there, the trollish types, uh, but we won't talk about them anymore. (laughs)
1: <laughs> anyway, enough about me. Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, uh, ethics, and philosophy. Um, one of the places I teach is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. I'm currently writing a book, mixing all of those things together and, uh, and, and filtering it through issues related to technology and the way that those things are impacting Our lives and our communities and our world.
0: What you need, Tom, is some Waffle House. (laughs) That'll help you in your creative process.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The diners here just aren't cutting it. (laughs) Well, they're just not the same thing. Okay, Glenn.
2: (laughs) I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University. I am currently a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries. Uh, Headed by Ken Boa down in Atlanta, and I also am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay, great.
0: We are joined today by a friend of mine, David Stocker from Dallas. And uh, David has been a great friend to the podcast uh, over the years. And uh, David and I uh, go back a little way. But uh, rather than steal your thunder, David, why don't you introduce yourself, maybe tell us some things about yourself that folks maybe in podcast land may want to know.
3: Uh, sure. I'm David Stocker. I'm an architect here in Dallas, Texas. So our firm is SHM Architects, and we have the privilege, we're really probably known for a lot of high-end residential, but we've been uh, blessed to be able to do a few nice uh, church projects as well. That's That was my introduction to Chris. We met at the... I, I, I set out a table full of books. I f- figured that was a way to grab the best pastors. And so uh, I, I, I hooked Chris. Uh, as, and, and So since then, we've been friends, and uh, we went out to dinner our first night to meet. And so we didn't go to the, wa- the Waffle House.
0: But, uh, no, no. We were slumming. Um, we went to some five-star restaurant. Yeah. We,
3: we would have gone had there been one nearby, I'm sure. <laughs> Chris and I have done a couple articles that were in modern reformation and sacred architecture. We've found a really cool Catholic journal on architecture and, and together uh, done a couple things, which was uh, fantastic. So,
0: yeah, it's been a lot of fun knowing David over the years. And uh, was that in Louisville that
3: we first met? It was Louisville. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was a cool, that general assembly for the PCA was in Louisville. And one of the things that stood out to me about your, about your booth, David, apart from the fact that it was just a lot of cool books on architecture that were just like, like bait that you had put out on the table to see who would bite. And, uh, but it was the, was the fact that you didn't, you didn't have any of the sort of the, the uh, kind of the, uh, you know, the standard stuff that show sort of, you know, like, in, you know, organizations and, and vendors usually have at an event like, you know, that like General Assembly, every you know, everybody has these sort of cool, unfoldable booths with all kinds of photographs. So David just put up like a black felt uh, blanket <laughs> behind him and then had these these books. And they were books on uh, architecture and the theological significance of uh, church architecture. And uh, that drew me in. Was I the only guy that picked up a book
3: <laughs> you know it's it's been okay, but I will say it's, you've been a uh it's okay i won't I won't complain too much you, you've been the best by far chris
0: <laughs> Well, I'm glad to know it I'm glad to know it and uh anyway uh let me just say a little bit about David and his firm because I've been down to Dallas. I've had a chance to see it. David is very modest um when David says the high end sort of side of the market in Dallas. You're building about eighty mansions simultaneously at any given moment. I <laughs> so, yeah.
3: never like we'll, the term mansion, but they, they, are, <laughs> they, they We are. I mean, it's wonderful to do incredible detail because uh, you know we'll talk about it day, but everything has meaning, and you know we can really. The meaning's not in the size or the mansion. The meaning's in the place. And that's so, yeah. Uh, that's
0: that's great. Yeah. We went to the, to the, uh, was it the designer district or the arts district for lunch one day?
2: Yeah. And, uh,
0: there was this really enthusiastic interior designer who came up. She was all, you know, you know, you know, motivated to talk to David about one of the, one of the buildings or houses that that she was helping him on. And it was the Jason Witten, the uh, mansion for the, you know, one of the Dallas Cowboys, the tenant for the Dallas Cowboys and you were working on his house and, uh, then we went out. And we we actually went and, and looked at one of the one of the houses that your firm worked on. It was really a fabulous thing. But like you noted, uh, our main you know uh, kind of a subject of uh, collaboration and conversation over the years has been sacred architecture. And you know we were going to go. We were going to go to the UK a couple years ago, and uh, we had this this wonderful trip set up where we would go to see uh, homes, you know, uh, that were built in the 19th century and earlier that, that we thought might reflect some of the, sort of the themes that I address in my book, Man of the House and elsewhere. And, uh, we were all excited and then COVID hit <laughs> and shut everything down. So it hasn't been, we have not
3: been able to do that. It was a bummer of the year. We were going to Oxford and really yeah. just to show, to show what a culture can build. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, and and then to some smaller places that had remnants of kind of the the uh, Roman household uh, yeah. you know, out in that countryside. So, bummer. That. Yeah, it
0: would have been, would have been a wonder, wonderful trip and the timing would have been great for my book on Bombadil. I was hoping to maybe do a little, you know, research there and actually look at things that Tolkien wrote. But anyway, it's all Water Under the Bridge. And uh, now we're excited about uh, something that we're doing here in the Pacific Northwest that David is going to be helping us with. We're hoping to actually... Uh, develop uh, something that is really kind of reflects, uh, you know, some of the some of the things that we've talked about in the past um, in terms of you know sacred architecture, but also kind of the way communities in the past were designed uh, to reflect the centrality of the church and God's work in the world, and um, so. Uh, David's going to be coming up here to the Pacific Northwest next month, spend a little time with my session and some other folks here, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But maybe maybe what we could do is kind of, you know, segue, you know, do a segue into some things. Before you
2: segue. Sure. I would like to point out that Britain is now open for travel.
0: Just saying. Okay. Well. Maybe we can revisit that plan.
2: (laughs) We we had been kicking around the idea of trying to do a podcast tour. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'd like to pop that back on the table.
0: Yeah. We have a publisher who's actually uh, raised the prospect with me of sending us all over there and doing a kind of tour of Europe uh, with a series of podcasts uh, in different locations. But um, anyway, so why don't we why don't we zero in here a little bit on a few things? Um, I think maybe the place to begin is with the subject of sacred architecture. We've talked about it before in the show, but when when you think about sacred architecture, David as an architect, is there anything that's sort of you know really central for you in your thinking when you come to you know a project because you have designed churches, you have been an architect that's helped churches build new, uh, sanctuaries and so forth. So what are some things that really are important to you as an architect when you think about this and you're a believer and, and you've got obviously, uh, some very, uh, sort of strong convictions related to architecture, theologically, that are theologically grounded. So, so what do you, what do you think?
3: Well, I mean, I try to think of everything, the podcast, I mean, I I can't tell you how much benefit I get from the podcast, Because when you all speak, you speak of everything, and architecture is really—it's kind of uh, the—it's the three-dimensional aspect of everything. Hmm. And so when uh, you know, I like to say it's—it is the worldview like Texas barbecue. Low, you cook it low and slow. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
3: uh, uh but at the end it's everything that we lived in. I mean we we really live in things that were created by the philosophy of the 75 years ago. Now we finally are getting to experience it. So mm-hmm. I mean often we feel that it's a you know it's a rush to it it's just a style but it it really is when you guys talk I only relate it to architecture. All, all last week about uh fables. I mean mm-hmm the same thing, just apply it to uh, architecture. It's, it's all really there. And, and I think as, so. At the core, it would be that everything does have a meaning. Uh, and, and, but everything, not just the sacred part, everything has a meaning. And, and, and we spend no time on that. Uh, you know, in the, when we think, I mean, unfortunately we don't even think of that has a meaning. Uh, and and I mean, we should at least start with our sacred architecture, knowing uh, the, the, the depth. And, and it is a multi-layered depth. Um, as Chris, I know we've talked about, I think you worked on a church early on and they came and and gave you a giant gymnasium and a small worship center, which, you know, <laughs> always, always remember that story. And, and, and so, I mean we catechize our children. We catechize ourselves daily. We catechize the neighborhood daily and in, in, in our sacred architecture. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that, a really, that's where I, I start by listening to the podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like to take credit for everything, but there are some things that came before us. <laughs> but, you know, one of those things, you know, when, when we think about some of the, I guess, dismissiveness that people have, you know, sort of express when it comes to sacred architecture um, you know, there's a kind of, well, the church is the people and not a building. You know, we hear that a lot. And, and, and in a way, of course, that's uh, correct. But isn't it interesting that when the, you know, the, you know uh, Peter talks about uh, the church uh, as people, he likens it to a building. <laughs> right. In other words, there is a connection, you know, stones and, and so forth, cornerstone, uh, you know, it, it all, it all kind of connects to each other. But even here, in you know, well, when I, when I think about New England, uh, one of the things that everybody admires, no matter where they come from or where they even are philosophically or theologically, they're charmed by that white clapboard church on the town green. And that, that church preaches, that speaks, even though uh, people may reject the message and even though maybe the people in the building are contradicting the message of their building. You know, uh, the building points up. Most of those churches today don't point up. They point uh, to you and kind of make you the focus. Um, And maybe that's that's the odd thing about this. Many evangelical churches, which I know ostensibly are about pointing up, uh, their architecture doesn't do that. Uh, So we have the architecture of these kind of out there uh, Unitarians, (laughs) you know, and so forth. Uh, and their architecture directs our eyes upward, and we go to some evangelical churches, and then they feel like living rooms, and it seems like the the goal is uh, basically, you know, creaturely comforts uh, as being the objective, you know, and what the building seems to say. How about you guys? What do you think, Tom? Glenn, have any thoughts on these things? Glenn, you
2: go. Well, for- I, yeah, sure. There, there are two things that that occur to me right away. First of all. I know nothing really about architectural theory but I have heard the phrase form follows function. So what we have to decide it seems to me if you if you're going to use that as your your standard in architecture what we have to decide is what is the function of the church. And I would suggest that the function is a lot bigger than most people in the in the pews or in the pulpits for that matter actually recognize know right. it's similar if you if you take a utilitarian view, well, what is the utility of the church? What is it that it is supposed to be doing um mostly we think of it i think when um When I look at new churches, uh, what you see are things that view the utility in terms of how, how do the people interact with the stage, you know, or what else can we use this room for? Is that really the kind of utility that you want to have in a church, right? Shouldn't the utility be directed in some other way? Yeah. So the, the, These are you know, just some semi-random thoughts that, as you were talking, that, that kind of crossed my mind. Yeah, yeah. Tom, you got any thoughts?
1: Yeah, they, they come of it maybe from a different uh, angle, um, just kind of experientially. I, I know as a student in Oxford in particular, where you have these, these grand buildings and tied to, to uh, churches and sanctuaries, in um, schools wrapped around them and you do you do notice I think right away kind of how small you are when you go into these places that's one of the things that that I remember but it did you know oftentimes I hear you know um, people talk about that as sort of um, creating you know kind of a, almost a you know God being so distant um, that you know that, that, that but but I had the kind of my sense was it was very different. Um, it, it created a whole different um, way of thinking about things and relating. Um, so there was, there was that aspect, but then there was the way in which every little detail was thought through in such a way that the, you know, the gargoyles or the little, the little images or the way in which the whole sanctuary structured is filled with meaning and symbol and sign. Um, and so, you know, these are, these are certain things that as, you know, Glenn was just saying, the, the function of those, um, you know, changed as, as the, you know, the vision of things changed, especially in the West and Christianity. And so, um, just thinking about that, um, you know, maybe that's another place to touch on when we talk about sake, the sacred and meaning, um, is there a disconnection now from from that larger vision um, that is, is basically shifting over to something that is just completely pragmatic instead? Yeah,
0: we're completely amenitized. You know, it's all about kind of the moment and, and, our, and us as we find ourselves in it. You know, when you think about those Gothic cathedrals with the soaring uh, roofs, they they obviously were trying to give you the impression or kind of put you in sort of this uh frame of mind that helped you understand you know sort of your place in the grand scheme of things then there were other uh you know church uh you know s- s- you know uh, you know architectural approaches or uh, sacred architectural approaches that were not quite as um, you know didn't quite stress transcendence but were still Uh, intended to to teach like I'm thinking about the Church of the Transfiguration on Cape Cod which uh, is uh, a basilica and it's uh, uh, only been completed within the last I think 20 years or more you know no more than that and what you have in that facility is you know when you enter the when you enter the sanctuary the doors have Adam and Eve on them and they're maybe 15 feet tall you know, you know, cast, uh, in bronze and they open. And then you have proceeding from your feet, this mosaic on the floor that goes all the way through. And you have the, you know, the congregation seated on either side so they can witness the procession and the apse is, uh, and you know, obviously at the very, uh, other end of the sanctuary. And there you've got, you know, the, uh, glorified Christ, uh, and the, the idea, of course, is that, you know, you're proceeding and then everything in the, the building tells the story of uh, salvation, you know, from the frescoes to the, you know, the, the images in the floor with the mosaic and, and everything about the place, uh, you know, you know is, is intended to proclaim the gospel. Uh, there's no way you could ever, you know, come out of that place without kind of getting the point. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and you're supposed to sort of see yourself as proceeding along with the church through time, through all of these different things, you know, all these witnesses on the wall who are looking down upon you that you're, that you, uh, uh, you know, share the same faith with. It's a marvelous thing, but, you know, there are, there, I guess what that means is that, you know, there are, there have been a number of different you know, sort of uh, approaches to sacred architecture, but I don't think that we've uh, made sacred architecture so man-centered as it is today any other time in the history of the church. Today it's all about, you know, uh, making sure it feels as much like a living room or like The Tonight Show or like a rock concert as possible. In other words, you're just trying to make it seem as though there's no you – know. No, nothing that's qualitatively being stated here with this architecture that uh, maybe says something different than anything else in society.
3: It's that uh, there's that quote that Marshall McCollum, the medium is the message. Well, this this 100 years ago, that still applied. The medium was the message. Mm -hmm. Now, now, are you going to be consistent with with the building was what said as well? And that's that's the disconnect. Now you might still have somewhat the message, but you change the medium. Now you actually just created a different message. And I would say that's the strongest, the strongest message. I like to think in churches if I'm a five-year-old and I open that 12-foot door, I am under. I have I remember that for the rest of my life, because that's four times my scale. If, I, right. if I'm a six-foot-tall person, I remember that door and as 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 you all know the the doors the gateways into cathedrals i mean they're they come and they knock on the door and the door's open there's there's so much and like i said that was the medium to the message and right. and and now we've we've we have we have to re refine this for sure
0: yeah, uh, yeah i think some people c- recoil from this uh in the name of i guess Equality, and then and then that has uh, different ways of being expressed. So some people will say, "Well, the the churches that you guys are talking about, those were churches that were just, you know, so incredibly costly to build. You know, we we don't have the resources to do something like that today. But even poor churches back in the day uh, would take you know uh, the resources that they'd had and make buildings that's that's you know that preached. Um, you know, as as clearly and as grandly as they could manage to to build them. So I'm not <clears throat> I'm not sure that that, that uh, you know uh, objection that sometimes I hear raised uh, has any any weight. You know, kind of a thing to kind of consider in all this is a, ta- a kind of tacit gnosticism that can be at work when people reject the, the sort of the, the the sort of the medium. When they say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter uh, whether or not the building is saying anything. We all know that the most important thing is happening in our hearts. Well, what, what, you know, we, we can say, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really important that something is being heard in your heart. But does that mean that everything else is chopped liver? <laughs> yeah. Does that mean that there's nothing else in the world that speaks?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the descriptions that you get of God's throne room in heaven and you spend more than a tenth of a second thinking about it, you've got to come to the conclusion that God really likes color. He really likes beauty. Um, He, you know, he he, he isn't, you know, uh, uh, you he isn't, so well what we would describe as humble or something like that that he downplays his glory his grandeur and his significance why should we think that if he doesn't do that that we should
1: yeah i mean i think what happened is you know as we've talked about it a lot is as as a full vision of god that you know christian theologians kind of carved out for a long time Um, started to really take root, especially in Western culture, but wherever it takes roots, you will see along with it a strong view of humanity, not in the sense of humanism grounded in itself, but in a sense that that God doesn't have to decrease and man increase versus man increase and God decrease. It's not a zero-sum game because we're not talking on the same field and plane of reality. So we depend on God. and We're passive even when we're active. So for me to be active is, is actually just as dependent on God as if I'm passive, <laughs> because either way. And so what it does is the closer I actually am in union with God, the more of the distinct creatureliness and gift that I am is is refracted in the glory of God that comes through this particular form is refracted. So what happens as creatures actually grow closer to the infinite source of all things, on their creaturely plane, they act, their distinction becomes all the more glorious because it manifests something in, the, in each distinct creature which only has its ultimate fullness in the fullness that God is. Let me put it another way. God is so um, resplendent and so perfect beauty itself, that nothing creaturely can, can contain that. But the whole of creation together harmoniously exhibiting its creatureliness towards God um, refracts in each little way that glory in its own way, and that creates, you know, you know basically heaven and earth are full of your glory. And so all of these different parts, all of these different aspects of human creating and creativeness oriented to God the right way, allow for a glory to manifest that wouldn't be done otherwise. And so there's more of the glory that is exhibited when things are oriented towards God, not as we pull back and and don't exercise our giftedness in 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 our endowments. And so, and then there's the flip side. There's also this sense that we think that because sin has impacted everything creaturely, therefore we're not supposed to do anything creaturely. We're just supposed to basically, you know, deny everything about our endowments, and 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 even the, the magisterial reformers would not do that. I mean, you wouldn't have Bach, the music of Bach, if if they did that. <laughs> right. Well, let's think a little bit about uh, the, the medium.
0: So, David, you you uh, have. Uh, have uh, helped churches build new uh, sanctuaries. Uh, When you are in a conversation with a, with a church on these matters, what are some of the, I guess, uh, what's the grammar? Maybe that's a way to put it. What's the grammar of sacred architecture? Are there kind of uh, things that you try to, to uh, help them see need to be included in the, in the construction of a sanctuary? Uh, Are there, Sort of approaches that are sure are worth
3: I, thinking about. I kind of start by telling Hey, it starts by how you arrange the chairs, uh, and basically, it's creating how you're going to st- structure as part of your liturgy. But it, it, just the chair arrangement, you're, you're saying a lot. Mm. I mean, uh, you, you you can create the the hierarchy within that. You can draw it in. There's there's decent arguments. I don't think everything has to look. And in history, everything doesn't look alike uh so i'm not making an argument for that but i do think you have to be intentional and and i can't stress how much where the pieces go uh because i just created an order with that you know where where's the pulpit where 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 is the baptismal um how do we come around the table together and i i i when i get with them. And I've spent a lot of time with the, with the pastor. That's one of my favorite person and saying, Hey, we're going to shape this together. I want to just be consistent with the message that you have. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, I mean, as architects, there's functional things, there's codes and parking. I mean, unfortunately Mm that the, the the money spent on the codes and the parking now, not Mm -hmm. on the other getting the, getting the right uh, seat. I, I, I just can't stress more how thinking it through, it can be very humble, by the way, that they, uh, if you look in the past, the humble parish church was beautiful yeah. at the same time. Uh, and and you know, one other thing I would like them to, architecture is a process. I mean, we, we are, we are lost in the process as much as we're lost in, we're, we're thoroughly, we, we can be very traditional in the look, but we're thoroughly modern in the process. So we think mm-hmm. how it's financed. We think how, you know, it has to fit in the community in a whole different, you know, if we peel this all back like we're an onion, eventually you get to the modern layer. And, you know, for the people, I find it really fast that they don't have any thought. For the people that that do think uh, along this way, eventually I do hit a modern layer, though, where we become very modern how we think about it. I mean, churches, churches uh, a lot of these churches, these wonderful churches were built in several hundred years. So it's not crazy. And, and there's a message in that as well, in a slogan. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a really wonderful marvelous point. You know, when I think about uh, sort of the grammar of space, uh, for example, when something is central, we're saying something. When something is high, we're saying something. When something is small, we're saying something. When something is near, we're saying something. In other words, there are, there are, there's kind of a grammar to this. So let's say we wanted to stress the importance of God's word and preaching. How would we do that? Would we take a would we take uh, you know the pulpit and make it as small as possible and as mobile as possible, <laughs> or put it off you know in a corner, uh, or would we uh, make it large and substantial and central and high? You, you know, what I'm getting at there are ways that we that we communicate importance. That has to that have to do with the physical location and how
2: things are organized. when you look at medieval cathedrals, um, one of the things that you'll note they're they're basically it's a basilica plus transepts, which means it's in the shape of a cross. The high altar is at the crossing point, okay. They frequently will have side chapels with other altars uh, around, uh, around the church, but what's interesting is where they tend to put the pulpit. The pulpit is halfway down, roughly, halfway down the nave from the transept to the to the doors, um, and it 's up it's up on, on one of the piers, one of the the uh, compound pillars that that support the structure. and the reason they did that is because the cathedrals were so big, you couldn't preach from the center and have people hope to hear you. So they put the pulpit halfway down the nave so that when someone was preaching, which wasn't a central function in churches in that period, but when someone was preaching, people, they'd be, he'd be closer to the people and people could hear it. Now, in that particular setting, what's obvious is the altar. Because in Catholicism, the central I mean preaching is optional. The central fact is the is the celebration of the mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And that was a very visual thing. You had this large altar, it was elevated. Um, now it was done in a language nobody understood, but that's another matter. okay but but again, that that's a way of the way it was laid out is a communication is it's a means of communication there are pragmatic elements by putting the pulpit in the nave that's that's a pragmatic issue you get them closer to the people so more people can hear you um but what it is clearly communicating is that the central thing that happens it is literally at the center of everything is the altar and what what they're doing um what the priests are doing at mass let's think about this a little bit because the reformers of course uh when they
0: uh, had a, a hand in rearranging the furniture <laughs> you know they did uh, make the pulpit in many instances central and there have been some uh, you know uh, scholars who have gone back and attempted to demonstrate that this was actually how it act, you know things were organized in the earliest you know church buildings uh, in Christendom uh, I'm not going to get into any of that because I'm not qualified to know you know what's you know, a good argument, not a good argument when it comes to that sort of thing. But I I do think it's important to note that they thought how the furniture was arranged spoke.
2: Right. And that and that's what we need to keep in mind. Yeah, no, we have to be careful here. In the reformed world, you have the focus exclusively really on preaching. In within Lutheranism, they maintain an altar. And they will right. typically have the two of them together, the, the altar in front, the pulpit behind it, um, yeah. because it is the preaching of the word that the sacrament uh, exhibits, demonstrates and so on. You have to have the preaching of the word in order for the sacrament to have effect. Well, and this, again, kind of reinforces the point is that the theology is reflected
0: in the in the architecture. Right. And, if, and and so this is something that came kind of sort of intuitively and commonsensically to these folks. Today, we, we have a almost a, a divorce between these two things. And when we, when we talk about architecture, we're almost exclusively talking in these modern terms that David was referring to. And our concerns are with parking <laughs> and these kinds of things, uh, rather than some, some of these other matters that uh, inform, you know, the the proclamation and the receiving of God's word and sacraments. Um, so these are all important things to think about. Now I want to I want to move us in a direction that I think uh, might be uh, you know sort of new for some of our folks. So David and I on these articles that we wrote, we were not talking about church buildings exclusively. We were talking about church buildings within the within the setting of a community. So you know we were talking about how a whole community is organized, you know, and where the church building is in relationship to these, to these communities. And if you go to Europe, uh, you know, the, some of the most prominent or most important real estate is occupied by what? Church buildings. <laughs> you go to new England, it's the same thing. You know, you, you, you can't go to a town green in new England without having the white clapboard church which again, is kind of something interesting to think about that white clapboard church in my, in many minds in the United States is quintessential Christian, you know, architecture, but it was kind of a new development. You know, you don't go to Europe and see white clapboard churches, <laughs> you know, you see other kinds of structures, but uh, so they were doing something here that was appropriate to the situation that they found themselves in and what they could, what they could manage to, to build. But, uh, but, it, uh, but nevertheless, the, the 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 place of worship was in the center now we live in a world where it's like kind of cool to take a, a warehouse on the outside of town and convert it into like a worship center which what by which we mean we want to have a rock concert every sunday morning with a lot of smoke and light show or we want to have a, a place that you know people don't feel awkward in. We want them to feel like this is just another place, just kind of like the coffee shop down the street or what have you. So let's let's think a little bit about this. Um, do you have any thoughts, David, that you want to share with us uh, about maybe?
3: No, uh, uh, well, I definitely kind of tell stuff. you, I've loved like, your, your book, Chris, cause it helped me that this is the cosmic order. When I look, when I go to Europe, I'm just seeing the order that's there because in reality we just repeat ourselves, uh but 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 modernism has changed that it shifted us away so we've we've kind of lost our direction of, of what we're made for and so we don't we can't organize you know if you think of a zone to me a zoning code and chris and i wrote an article on euclidean uh zoning which you know separates everyone i mean we as modernists decided that everything should be separate we we as people know we want everything close by. I mean, I want my church to. I want to walk to my church. I want to walk to my office. I want to walk to see my grandkids, or if I have grandkids uh, someday. Uh, but I mean, in reality, I want things close. I mean, no one wants to. No one wants to drive. I don't want to spend two hours on the road every day. But we've just decided. This is when our modern came out. Underneath it, we're just all thoroughly moderns. We we uh, we bought into the transportation and other things, and, and we've lost we've lost we've lost a lot of life, uh, spending time by ourselves in the road. And and there's people people have recaptured that. The key person I would say is Christopher Alexander, who wrote a book called The Pattern Language, and and I think what he he's really looking at all these patterns. He's just a very observant architect that looked all over the world and said, "These are things that everywhere I go, that pattern exists." That uh, that I come into a courtyard and I uh, courtyards which live and there's there's it's a great book. to just a primer of really what makes great architecture, what makes great uh, design. But people, people as your show last week that these were like normal people that just did it. It wasn't mm-hmm. an architect. They all, they all knew that because that worked for them. And so when it works for them, they build something and the other build, builds and it all works together for us. So.
0: Right. Yeah. So we're kind of building our communities around, um, I, I guess, this tendency that we have to kind of keep everything separate and discrete. So we've got like the industrial area over here. we got the business area over here. We have the residential area over here and we don't mix those things up.
3: Correct. And, you, and then the traffic speed to get there to keep you moving and the width of a fire truck to make sure your house, house doesn't burn down. But uh, that, those streets in, uh, in Oxford, you know, how do they get a fire truck through there? We're all worried about that. Well, they figured yeah. it out before. But lit, literally the unit of a city is probably a fire truck right now. It's one of those big, long fire trucks that's driving at 30 miles an hour. And how quick can they make a turn?
0: That's uh, interesting.
3: But wow. it's not, that is not where Oxford or other places, it's a, it's the human scale. It's a scale that yeah. I can walk in a little while. And that's what we've, we've lost. And, um, we're trying. Yeah,
0: to this, th- this whole matter of the hu- of human scale is really worth, I think, thinking about a bit. Um, so if, you know, our, our, our bodies, uh, are not merely, uh, just, you know, sort of biological machines, but in some sense reflect the cosmos itself. So I know we have this macrocosm and the microcosm, which is a way of thinking that people all over the world understood. And it's only in the modern world that we've lost, you know, a sense of that. But that means that uh, it's almost uh, wrong to make people uh, have to get into a car and travel. 45 minutes to two hours to get anywhere you know you, you, you want to be able to uh make it possible to sort of amble along to get what you need so like when i lived in boston the most popular neighborhoods in the city were the oldest neighborhoods they were the places where a lot of people wanted to be because in those older neighborhoods they didn't have zoning <laughs> they just you know they would uh, you know little mom and pop shops would be you know on every corner uh the park was right around the corner um, everything you needed was like in walking distance. Like we lived in a place called lower mills in Dorchester and it was just marvelous, marvelous community. I miss, I miss, uh, that place, but it seems like today there's kind of a revival of interest in the, in that and not just in the sense of re inhabiting old towns and old sort of, you know, sort of communities uh, or, or neighborhoods, but actually starting new ones. So there's a phenomenon called, uh, the uh, new urbanism, right, uh, David? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what's, what's going on with that?
3: Yeah, it would be, there's a group of architects uh, out in, uh, in Portland, uh, Peter Calthorpe, but uh, uh, Andres Duany in, uh, in, in Florida uh, It kind of began with a community called Seaside uh, uh, on the Gulf coast of Florida. And it just, Really basically looking at these patterns and actually working it through, redesigning, getting through all the hurdles you have to do to not make the the fire truck the unit of design. And Mm. so uh, now that's the posh neighborhood. You, you can pretty much highlight I can uh, use my Google Maps and I can find all the wealthy neighborhoods. I can in the suburbs because it's now laid out like that in the cities, I can see from above that that is a it has an incredible town planning and it, I can see it I can see it from above.
1: And so yeah, that's
0: uh, interesting. So now for all of the sort of the, the talk concerning you know caring for the less fortunate, some of the, uh, well, many of those folks are being forced to live in some of the most inhumane conditions around. Like, uh, you know, I, during my teen years, I lived in a housing project because my, my, you know, I, you know, my, my mother, I was with with her and she was not well in and out of uh, institutions. And um, anyway, that's a long story, but uh, it was not a very pleasant place to live. It was new. It was kind of a modern place, but it wasn't uh, a place that I would ever, say uh that's a place i want to live in today it was sort of like a place i was forced to live in during that those days you know when we think about you know a lot of these housing developments or projects uh in like chicago like cabrini green i don't even know if it's still there but it was like i remember driving through it and it was one of the ugliest it felt like something that the soviets would build <laughs> you know just inhumane uh and
3: you, you had Pruitt-Igo in st louis Pruitt-Igo was famously exploded <laughs> uh, they, they blew it up, yeah. uh, which is, which is, which is, uh, uh, uh you know, it needed it. And so,
0: <laughs> but, but isn't that interesting that, that people of means today want this old way of living, even though they can afford to maybe, you know, take a helicopter to work if they needed to, they want that walkable neighborhood. They want that charm, you know, that, that maybe, uh, our ancestors just thought was normal.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I, I I definitely thought, but, but you know, I, I would make the argument that everyone needs that. I mean, the, the, the uh, the, the wealthy can afford the change. The mm-hmm. poor can't, the poor, I mean, they're, they're given what the remainder. So they're, they're left to the remainder of, uh, you know, from the, 50s, 60s 70s spread everyone out atomize everyone keep us uh, separate which now in Dallas that's the slum I yeah. um, now that it's the in it's the in-between it's the you know most cities have a uh, you know uh, a radial where where there's a nice area in town it spreads out further and then we go further but the, there's these bands of, uh, of, of problems right now
0: yeah yeah yeah, I remember uh, years ago learning, and this was before sort of the new urbanist phenomenon and sort of the revival of cities in the United States really kind of caught, uh, uh, you know, some or had some momentum. But I remember learning that it was the suburbs of Paris where the poor lived. Uh, and downtown Paris was, you know, for, uh, it was pretty exclusive and not
2: a place for poor people. Having lived in Paris, that's pretty much the case. But what, what, what I think is particularly interesting about Paris is that if you compare it to, say, London, Paris is built as a city, is built on a human scale. Paris is a city that's made for walking. London isn't. Yeah. And I think that's because modern London was really a product of the empire, um, Whereas Paris really retained its essential, I mean, it's been, there've been all kinds of upgrades to it, but it it never really lost in some sense uh, its medieval roots where it was designed, like I said, to be a place where you walked. Yeah, I think maybe in the United States, the comparison
0: could be made between, say, Boston and New York. Boston is a walking city, at least in certain sections. If you're in the Beacon right. Hill area or the North End, or so forth, even into the Back Bay. Although when you get into the Back Bay, you got something that's kind of Parisian in the sense that it's all that those Parisian boulevards. Um, but it's a it's a walking city. New York pretends to be a walking city, but if you try to actually walk around in New York very much, uh, it's it, it's a crushing experience. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. so let's think about this theologically. Go but, ahead, go ahead, talk. Yeah,
1: well, before you go, it's, it's similar. I, um, but you know, living in Oxford, um, it, it was this kind of medieval town. It was definitely geared towards being able to walk. In. So on the one hand, it has this sense in which you know there there is this kind of you're small in comparison, but not small in the sense like New York small more you know spatially different um you know if i could explain it that way and one of the things i remember always conversing with friends is you could almost get to a point living in oxford as if there was no world outside of it i mean that's the kind of sense you had it it, it had everything and it almost was ordered in a way that that was it you know i mean that there wasn't there wasn't a world beyond it and it, that that is a very uh you know just aesthetically that was a very um something unique i i never encountered anything like that and i haven't since um but there there is something about that you can of course you can go to your church very easily um you know um your store you know everyone car- went to the store carried their groceries home you know by hand you go frequently um you were connected to places right. regularly and so, um, so, yeah, on the one hand, the, the architecture, you know, kind of drew you to, to a kind of transcendence. But on the other end, it was very humane and, in, and, and connected and almost full in a different sense. So we're, we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, human
0: scale and uh, the significance of the human body. There might be a little bit of dissonance here in the, in the minds of some, some of our listeners when I mentioned early on that it seems as though many of our churches today are built with hum, human beings in mind and not with you know God in mind um, that might say oh how do how do those two things fit together how does human scale and human centeredness uh, you know why are those two things sort of at odds in you in, in what you're talking about well I think one way to think about it is this when we talk about human scale we're talking about um, the ways in which uh, our common or sort of our common life uh, as human beings it you know is fostered in an environment that's uh, reflects you know the significance of the human body in terms of how it's constructed whereas what I was talking about with regard to a church you know in a church um, the modern approach is to kind of try to make the human being feel as sort of cre- you know sort of physically comfortable as possible and sort of downplay uh, sort of divine uh, realities. Uh, everything's about the lighting and everything that's that's intended to make it feel like a living room, or everything's about you know cushioning things so that you actually kind of feel like you're on a couch, you know, or things are set up in such a way so as to make sure that you can get your your uh, your, your latte before the service, <laughs> that kind of thing. Whereas uh, when you enter into a sacred space, uh, that's intended to make you look up and be aware of this larger reality surrounding you know us that uh is a kind of different thing now i want to i want to segue now uh into this whole matter of kind of a theology of uh sort of urban architecture and i know you think about this a little bit david in fact david is going to be coming to our part of the world here in pacific northwest next month as i noted earlier to help us think about how we maybe in the church that I belong to or, and I lead could actually be sort of a, well, uh, you know, in a position to actually create a neighborhood uh, with, with the church uh, in it, a new church building in it. So as you think about that kind of thing, David, what are some things that, you know, you would say, these are the things that I would have in mind if I had like my ability to sort of like make a, make an ideal sort of town how would that how would that look and is there any theology that would sort of inform that
3: yeah it's a, that's a great question i need to start thinking about this cuz it's <laughs> not far away but, you know it's it's to be holistic i mean why can't you grow food together i mean there there's a communal aspect of this by the way that is actually just what is what a town was i mean the unit uh, back to the cities a little bit a unit of a city is the neighborhood i mean that's your unit. Uh, it has a scale. You, and in the community, that form. So basically, Chris, we'd be looking at what the aspect of form in a neighborhood really is. And that can be from the community garden that you'd have. It can be that some ability to school together. Um, I mean, I, it really hits all the aspects that we have. And maybe there's a place to you work from home. Uh, you know, um, this, and this is a key part of this new urbanist idea, a lot of different flavors that, that are needed for, you want a cross section of people. You, you, where, where does, where does grandma live? We don't send her off, uh, in, in, in the household. She's part of the household, uh, or grandchildren, you know, the the ability that we live, maybe our grown children are closer by. I don't see, I don't see a big problem with that. I think our world tells everyone to send them away, but it seems smarter to keep them close by uh, and be able to, maybe it expands that you could add a, uh, add a room for uh, mom and dad in the back. So I think it's really looking at all life for all the ways we leave and, and leave provision for that. And, and, and it takes a lot of people to do that. And, I, and actually with the key thing of working together for an architect i need to know that information what makes life work is really the thing that we've answered then then we do get to draw it we do get to give it form but um, what th- this is why i'm excited about working with your group chris because we're kind of meeting together to talk about this the, the, the mistake often is made that the architect is supposed to show you all this but there's there's much more wisdom Uh, together, and and we can draw things and give it form, but we really need that information together.
0: Yeah, that's great. One of the nice things, and this may catch people by surprise, one of the nice things about being in the Pacific Northwest is there's more openness to this kind of thing than in other parts of the country. Uh, You know, in the the Northeast, in New England, uh, when you get out of the older parts of town, uh, some of the most rigid zoning laws are in effect you know uh where no exceptions are made ever (laughs) for anything you know like one of the great things we have out here is a development called the adu the alternative dwelling unit where you can just you know just set up a, a little uh home in your backyard and you can use that little home for a range of things you could have grandma there you could send the kid that you're sick and tired of having in the house out there. (laughs) You you can, you can rent it out. (laughs) You can do a lot of things with it. And uh, uh, they look at it here in this area as sort of like a great sort of development. Whereas I think back in the, you know, in the Northeast, that's sort of like uh, a a reason for your neighbors to pick at your house if you were to do something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think we've got a lot more flexibility out here, uh, You know, even, you know, like pocket neighborhoods and a lot of the new urbanist stuff that you noted before actually kind of comes out of Portland and Seattle. Uh, Some very interesting things going on.
3: No, if you back to the ADU, if you look, I'm in kind of the Highland Park area of Dallas, but every every place had the same thing. And, And actually, that's how you it would could be your help that works with it could just be someone that needs a leg up. I mean, this is this is where, you know, when you were poor and needed that, you would provide you extra work. And I mean, an ADU is incredible. I mean, it makes sense, but, but you can't imagine how people, I mean, Christian people in the suburbs, that hate that
0: idea. <laughs> you know, it, it's going to lower the, it's going to lower property values. When in fact it probably yes. could have the exact opposite effect and make your, your, your property much more flexible and useful oh, and all, desirable. All,
3: all the particular nasty things that went on happened at some city council meeting, you know, 30 years ago, you just didn't know that you're going to be paying the price today. And it's just because yeah, those, yeah. those, those, those are, those are pretty vicious and they've happened a long time ago.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we're thinking about for this uh, um, project that we're hoping we can pull off here and we're still, you know, just at the idea stage of things. And uh, this is all kind of building castles in the, in the sky. I think though, that we've got the resources and the people, uh, and the location that it could work in. But how does the church as a building uh, kind of relate to its community in a, in, in this kind of, uh, you know, endeavor? Um, you mentioned earlier all the different things that we ought to keep in mind with regard to human needs and family needs and and uh, and so forth in terms of how those things, community activities and stuff. Do you have any thoughts particularly on, Uh, this matter of a sanctuary and how it should be constructed and how it should look if we were going to make a a theological statement about uh, community and God.
3: So my favorite is a bell. I really, I love the call to worship. I mean, it doesn't mean that everyone is, is, but I like to be reminded. And uh, as Tom knows or Glenn in Europe, if you have anything, you remember the bells, of and 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 that is is it's not just the time of day that is right before even song you're called yeah. to worship and so uh, i mean i mean it is not just the building it's the sound it's the smells it's everything uh uh so so that's one of the easy ones i'm a i'm a mm-hmm. bell lover uh, <laughs> uh as, as as just the tonal uh call okay. uh I mean, certainly, all the other architecture, the, 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 the green, the opening, the space around it, that really becomes the community center. Uh, there's there's many uh, there's many means leaving some space, not not being surrounded by a parking lot. Uh, uh, you know, you need to have you need to have green around you. You need to be always welcoming. Uh, just part of the normal activity of a community.
0: Yeah, so maybe what that would mean is that, you know, if we were to design something uh, and we had the, the freedom to do what we wanted to do, we got to figure out a way to kind of keep the parking out of view and make the, the, the building itself central. I think that sometimes, you know, when you see these modern church structures, it looks like, you know, the, the church building is kind of uh, this uh, island in, this, in a sea of asphalt, which surrounds it.
3: Oh, the, the budget for parking is far exceeds the. That's where all the good stuff went. It went to the mm-hmm. parking lot. And so, 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 they're, I mean, they basically one car per every three people. Then you've got to buy land for that and you've got to create the drainage for that. And yeah. before long, you've taken all the architecture out of the, the building and uh, it's, it's a big loss. Yeah. With your scheme, I think we could hide it and leave it within the community and not, uh, you know, have it on the street where it is in other locations.
0: Yeah, now one of the things you noted was the uh, ability to access the facility uh, maybe at any time. So what if you had a situation where you had uh, maybe a small chapel that was off of the large worship area that would be open for people to use for prayer
1: during the course of a day? You know, it wouldn't have to take up a whole lot of space, maybe
0: only be large enough for maybe 10 to 20 people. You know, there are a lot of things like like uh, that that I, I wasn't even thinking about. You know, you you talked about smells. What what about the gardens? What about you know? Shouldn't we have uh, the the sort of the, the natural beauty of our of our surroundings uh, filling the air, uh, not just with you know the sounds that we hear, but the, even the the aromas that we that we enjoy.
3: No, the the Anglicans get this right: morning prayer and evensong song, two, yeah. the two yeah. most important things of the day. Yeah. Uh, And, and, and a return that you're catechizing and just having that ability uh, that you're called to worship in the morning and you're, you're pray uh, for safety during the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and if you go to even song, when you all do your Europe trip, you just do an even (laughs) song.
1: Yeah. That's,
3: that is, that is the best. It Uh, is. Uh, It is, it is really hard to, but my bucket list is to do, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. and, and, um, in Cambridge, uh, which I've been to King's college, Cambridge, yeah. but I really want to go to the, uh, lessons and carols as well. Well, yeah. uh, there as well. That's yeah. that, that together and providing those opportunities is the gospel being preached, um, uh, every day.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's, Well, we've come to the point in show where we start to, we
1: should start to wrap things up. So why don't we just kind of make uh, our kind of our final comments, Tom? Yeah, it was uh, bringing that up. Uh, you know, reminded me of my time in Oxford, and I do remember the tintin daily of all the churches sounding off at marking time, the call to worship, and even song. Um, Christ church was a beautiful even song. I remember, but I do remember that you know distinctly that the church was was marking time and it was ordering time towards worship. And and I think when you mentioned the the placement of the bell, you know, it kind of I think about it. I'm fortunate here. There's a little Catholic church up the street that still has a bell that rings, um, but this is not everywhere. And and I think there's a great loss in churches that do not um, order everything about them, um, the marking of space and time in such a way that it reflects the true true reality of things. And I've
2: kind of yeah. get my
1: comment there. <laughs> Yeah, great. Anything you want to say,
0: Glenn, as we wrap up?
2: Yeah, I was thinking on in terms of the the theology of structuring the community. Um I found myself thinking about Luther. Uh Luther used to L- Luther was really big on the idea of the cultural mandate, although he didn't use that kind of terminology. He argued that, you know, a that a cobbler was doing sacred work because he was doing, he was providing for his neighbor's needs. And I think that if we think about community in that broader sense, that the service we do, the work that we do, all of these kinds of things are in fact sacred uh, activities then it opens the door to, I think, a broader vision of what a uh, a community can look like that is actually centered on the gospel and on on the church. Now it's just it, it, it's a semi random thought here, but it, it does occur to me that there that may be a piece that you need to take into account as you're working on on trying to develop uh, your ideas about community. Yeah, that's that's good.
0: Anyway, uh, this time has really flown. I mean, it's been <laughs> such a rich subject, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, David, is there anything you want to leave us with?
3: Uh, well, uh, probably just to thank you all. I mean, actually, the podcast has been. This is w- what you speak of each week. There's people like me listening to that. I hope there's others <laughs> that are out there really applying it to their, you know, daily work and, uh, you know, our my, my little cobbler shop here, uh, <laughs> you know uh is is important and you know what you're what you're doing i just on behalf of people that listen and i'd really like to thank you guys i know it takes a lot of time and but there's a lot of people my my son loves the the uh, podcast as well got his friends listening to it and it's really impacting some (laughs) uh, some people glad to know it you're 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 making headway
0: (laughs) (laughs) well we we appreciate those words of encouragement we're uh, as you know we say it all the time surprised at how how big the audience is we kind of are uh over kind of overwhelmed by that but uh anyway thanks thanks for your 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 thoughts and looking forward to seeing you next month uh, when you come up here we're going to be up in seattle Visiting our friends at Green City Development, uh, who might be involved with helping us make this thing we're talking about, and then we'll be down here in the Portland area talking to our church leaders, elders, deacons, and church at large, and and uh, you know, hopefully, this thing will uh, be something we can all look back on and say, "Wow, it was great to be part of that." I didn't see that coming. <laughs> kind and
3: of down like to the, the tour, tour as well. So, yeah, uh, yeah. that'd be well, great. Let, let us you know. Let us travel along with the pugsters. <laughs> That's
0: great. That's right. We'll have our we'll have our grumble kind of going along with us wherever we go. <laughs> yes. yes,
3: like the deadheads, we've got the grumble. <laughs> All
0: right. Yeah. On that on that note, why don't we say goodbye? <laughs> we thank we thank uh, you, uh, the you know the, the, the folks out there who, who listen to us each week and and give to the show, and it's all very uh, much appreciated. And we do uh, you know uh, also value your prayers. Um, you know we uh, want to make sure that what we do builds up the church and uh, is a blessing to people who listen, and even uh, you know. We, we hope that people who maybe don't even listen to us uh, because of the, na- of the work of the, of the show feel the positive effects uh, in their lives through the listeners who do. So anyway, with all those things in mind, thank you very much uh, for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.